I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. Tony De La Rosa won't wait for policy to mandate education about Asian Americans in the classroom. The anti-bias and anti-racist educator and researcher knows only 10 states require an Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders curriculum. It shows in how little many of us know about the ways Asian Americans have contributed to the U.S., but the lessons are everywhere in history, art, pop, culture, and beyond. His book, Teaching the Invisible Race, is part poetry, part memoir, and part content to help transform how educators teach Asian American narratives in the classroom. I asked Tony why he calls Asian Americans the invisible race. I call Asian Americans the invisible race because even amidst a 2020 like stop Asian hate movement, right, where the rise of anti-Asian hate started really going up after our national leadership kind of gave permission for people to act on their ideologies and their thoughts regarding Asian Americans, right? Whether it's rooted in being a perpetual foreigner or what have you, like you're not a part of this country, you're trying to be better than us, you don't help us, you know, whatever reason that they had, or it's just deep hatred, people started acting on it. And then the reason why I wrote is because what I saw that was being written about the movement was a lot of people were very surprised, right? The reactions mm. of like Asian Americans experience racism. Right. Wow. Right. And as an Asian American scholar and education scholar, I know that this is an American tradition, very similar to, I would say how other scholars of race will say like, yeah, slavery and anti-blackness is an American tradition. That is very similar in the same ethos that I have with the president's co-signing bills to, you know, incarcerate Japanese folks, right? Or to, in the Naturalization Act of late 1700s, to exclude our group. You know, there's so many policies at the national level and the local level that I noticed that we were experiencing as Asian Americans leading up to this point, right? This was kind of like the bubble popping moment, I would say. People will be writing about this moment in history for a while, like referencing for researchers, right? What's the time of analysis? What's the unit of analysis? They're going to use the time frame of post-2020 George Floyd and anti-Asian hate rise, right? They're going to use that frame of reference. I am too, because that's when people's collective idea and knowledge started to rise collectively around, oh, we exist. So to me, to call it the invisible race, just to say, yes, we have been invisibilized for such a long time. And two, I actually, if I go back, I would change it to the omitted race because invisible to me is still kind of a passive neutral time of turn. In my mind, omission is an act, right? And omission tells me a little bit more about the insidiousness of these policies that were written by people, by ideology and people in the back room saying, this is great. This is like, there's a whole project behind this. This is not like a last minute design. This is a whole project where people came together, made a decision, signed off and said, hey, we're going to put money around this. And then boom, this is happening, right? That's why I call it the invisible race. But if I would go back, I would call it the omitted race. What does it mean to be pro-Asian American in the classroom? 
I had to like really lean into this and thinking about where does this idea of pro-Asian American come from? And people are already pro-Asian American already from Asian American standpoint. We're investing in our communities, right? We're putting dollars into Asian businesses. We're amplifying Asian voices, right? There's people already doing that. I'm putting a name to some of that now, and I'm putting to a name to it in education from that standpoint. And I'm doing it with a critical lens tied to a pro-Black lens, right? So to me, I know that Asian American liberation is tied to Black liberation and that collective solidarity needs to be known. And to define pro-Asian American being tied to pro-Blackness, being tied to pro-Indigeneity, uh, being tied to pro-LGBTQIA2S+, right? In an intersectional lens, lets us know that Asian Americans are just not a monolith and we don't just exist in a funnel, right? We are existing amongst people, which is a whole chapter in and of itself, right? I teach people about Asian American activism rooted in cross-racial coalition, right? Because when people talk about Asian American, they feel like they can just like put us in May, October, or at the sideline of a curriculum, right? It's separate, but to me, it's embedded. So pro-Asian American is a lot of things. It means that we're embedded, we're intersectional, we're tied to cross-racial liberation movements, and more. One of the things you want educators to focus on is goodness versus success of Asian Americans. What does that mean? There are definitely points of success that I highlight, right? That's also part of being pro-Asian, but that's like the surface level. I think the goodness is kind of rooted in abolition. How do we center Asian American joy? What does that even look like? People don't know. Because if we're invisibilized, that's a great setting part. People don't know. So I get to have a chance to help to co-define that at a national level, now, my Asian American artist and arts activists, they know this stuff, right? Asian Americans know this stuff. But for me, writing to an audience that is primarily non-Asian, people need to understand that we have our own ways of joy as well. Where do we find joy? In home place. What is a home place? Like a place where we can feel authentic, where we feel safe, and we can feel brave at the same time, where we can practice our arts. Asian Americans, art, they do art. They don't just do STEM right? Mm. To be expansive as opposed to just this humble, meek, automaton robot that I think the stereotype falls on to describe us as, right? So that's what I mean with defining pro-Asian American and understanding the joy around Asian America. There's just so much more to be discovered and written about and explained. I guess one last one to like root into pop culture is that we recently had a big wave of pop culture. People have been following the movies, like the movie industry, Everything, everywhere, all at once was a big, joyful celebration of us. Her, the queen of it all, right? Coming from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, all the way. Like, if you know that film, she's not just in the Kung Fu film. She's in this very Asian futurist film. What is Asian futurism? People don't think about that. We can exist in the future. And seeing an all-Asian-American cast, that's joy. That's us saying that, oh, wow, people are willing to put money and resources into our community as opposed to being invisibilized, we matter and we're quite visible. So where do you think teachers get stuck in doing this? I feel like one thing is the shame that people will feel of not knowing. I think we need to get over that aspect of like, oh, I'm supposed to know everything. I don't know everything about Asian America, but I'm writing about it, right? I'm a scholar on this. And we just got to do the thing. We got to commit and actually do the thing. So I think part one is that Teachers are going to feel a little bit of shame. I, that's not the purpose, but I feel like in 
inevitably not knowing it, it's going to have some guilt and shame related to it. That's not the purpose of it. I want them to understand like, it's not a gotcha moment, but it's kind of gotcha moment. It's kind of like, hey, this is a way to assess yourself and like navigate the book. And it just is a, a good feeling in your body to be like, okay, it's not just me. Cause when you're having these conversations outside of you and this book, it, you are going to be talking to your friends about this and saying, oh, I did not hear about Lao. I can't name a Lao leader. I can't name a Sikh leader. I don't know the difference between brown Asian and non-brown Asians, right? And to me, this is like a starting point for people to kind of assess that. So number one, that's, that's going to be a challenge. Two, the translation, the embedding in your curricula. I think that's the hardest part. So I actually just gave some lesson plans straight up in the book itself, where you can literally copy like the arts spoken word and hip hop one is specifically something someone can just embed in their classroom to learn history, to learn English narratives, it aligns to those standards of identity, social development, the history of Asian Americans, right, and the contributions. That aligns really well with those standards, and people can just implement that. But the more difficult ones around intersectionality, around cross-racial coalition building, how do you embed that into an English humanities or social studies curriculum? I don't think people think that long in advance, having been a coach, instructional mm. coach. I know this because I assessed scoping sequences. I looked at when people were planning these processes. And I know to a fault that people just, if they don't do it on the front end in the summer when they're planning, they have the planning times. During the year, it's really difficult to implement something new. It's hmm. so difficult. It's like a habit that we're trying to break. And that habit combined with the lack of time or battling time, it's almost impossible. So for me, giving readily available resources and then offering to people, hey, we're doing a free drop-in workshop to translate this work, to translate it more. The book and the resources are one thing. The actual how-to is another thing. If I, you don't go to mine, you can go to this other community doing this work who can show you exactly how to embed this. With my work, I'm challenging educators to think about how do you get Asian American, that dialogue now, you're already talking with your kids, that's great. Step two is how do you actually get the community talking and involved. And that's another level, right? That takes years of practice. That takes practice. That takes you knowing asset mapping where your Asian Americans are in your community. Does Indianapolis have Asians? Yes, we do. Mm. We have Asian Americans. And I think when I talk to orgs in Indianapolis, they're like, oh, I don't know if your work is going to resonate because it's not that many Asian Americans. I'm like, that's the purpose though. You're kind of indicting yourself in the fact that you don't know that there's Asian Americans in Indianapolis or Indiana. And also a second level is that you need this even more in places where there's not Asian Americans. Right. It's much more important because if you're not going to get exposed to them by people, what is your way to build your racial literacy about Asian America if it's not in front of you? It has to be the school. School is the places to do those things. How much do you encounter fear of those educators who are living in communities where they say, oh, there's not a lot of Asian Americans, or why should I teach this? Because it's there's no Asian Americans in my class. Yeah, I really like this question because it's the question that every educator, for the most part, 80%, which is like the feminist labor market of white women in the education field, are going to feel, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to feel this way. And my first recommendation is to try to abandon that idea 
that you're not meant to be the person to teach it. Because logistically and logically, if you're 80% of the teaching force, we can't depend on Asian Americans to teach all of this stuff, right? That's a neoliberal ideology that the work has fall on Asian Americans. No, everyone needs to be teaching this. Black, white, Asian, Arab American, all that and more. My resource for people is to help have racial literacy and racial talk. And that's why my book is different than history books that are existing out there right now. After I did like an asset map of like the type of resources that were available, most of them were written by professors, right? Research-based, heavy content-based. Mine is a mixture having coached people, teachers and the like, I knew that there needed to be cognitive moments of pause and to reflect on these moments because this work has to live in your body, right? Mm. Because when you teach about something that's uncomfortable as a whole, whether it's race or disability or gender fluidity or whatnot in your classroom, which all should be taught, if you're not socialized to teach that or socialized to understand that and are comfortable with the content, it's going to feel like a challenge, right? I do want people to wrestle with it. I think that's part of the learning process. I want people to feel they have a starting place. And then from there, they can just practice. I just feel like teachers don't even have the foundation, right? We just need to get it out there, right? And that's why I say in the beginning, let's not wait for policy because policy is going to probably create some standards of how to teach this stuff. And some of this stuff is the standards from different policies are written from policymakers and not necessarily policymakers who have been educators, who haven't been fluent in racial literacy. Right now, I'm saying from a constructivist learning point, after building some foundational tools, you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. And that's part of the process of engaging in education, engaging in racial literacy development. It's like, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to fail. It's going to be an experience. I also know that there is a way to do this with nuance, with care, with consensuality. But then I don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. That's never what I want this to be. I want you to just start and then learn and with humility, reflect back and say, if I made a wrong, that's part of abolition. You are repairing that harm. And I think people just don't do that as a whole. Hmm. When you commit a wrong, teaching racial literacy or trying to strengthen racial literacy, especially if you're not good at it, there's a shaming that goes with it. I don't think from the world of racial literacy, from the world of Asian America, from the world of education, that we've done a great job of holding space for failure as a whole in these topics. And failure is very essential because that's just part of the learning process. So I want people to fail. I want people to reflect. And I want you to do it better the next time around right? Because this work is also iterative. If you know that Asian American isn't invisible, it will take you seven times, that seven time rule, to get a name into a student's head, right? So I want you to be teaching this seven times throughout and referencing. That's why one of my chapters has um, literally frames of people and portraits that you can reference in your classroom all throughout the year. I don't care what topic or what part of history or English lesson, I want you to ask what does Rohan Julie's perspective on this random topic, what could that be? Now you're familiarizing yourself with a Asian American leader in the US who is also multiracial and also trans identifying, right? You're doing so at multiple bats more than seven times and your kids are doing that at the same time. And now the fluency of talking about Asian Americans is built as a structure. And I think that's powerful. I do want to hear from you a little bit about intersectionality and 
the role that has in moving beyond this binary we live in of black and white. Yes. Asian Americans are not a monolith. So we have to go from an intersectional framework to understand the identities of, if I just say Filipino, my lived experience is very intersectional in and of itself. Mm-hmm. We think about socioeconomic status and it's in flux to like grew up low income, now reaching a middle class like socioeconomic status because of all the education. And I think that's important to understand where education intersected that. Plus, from a brown Asian perspective, right? What does that even mean? There's so much nuance that can be talked about. Filipinos are often seen as Latinos of Asia, right? What does that even mean based on the colonial project of Spain to the Philippines over the last 300 years? So our identity development has been shifted and changed very differently. If we don't talk about intersectionality, then yes, as a race scholar and a coach on anti-bias and anti-racism, I already know because I've seen it happen that people will talk about race within that black and white binary frame of, you know, history exists and history of race exists between white people and black people. That is like an oversimplification, but that, mm-hmm. that's, that's what people will go to because they oversimplify this oftentimes, right? So to me, using the intersectionality framework and the cross-racial framework of isang baksak, it's like a Filipino term of a cross-racial solidarity, isang baksak, those two logics really help the reader understand, wow, identity on a personal level, we all have multiple identity markers. Great. Step one. Step two. Oh, on a group level, self and group level, Asian Americans have been fighting with the Black community and vice versa, right? And the Blasian community, the multiracial community, which the Blasian community often gets left out. I'm talking about that nuanced racial literacy talk here is that even when scholars talk about Black and Asian solidarity movements, that multiracial identity gets lost. And that's why I included it because the multi-ethnic aspect of things gets lost, which is invisible within the invisible, right? And there's a lot of concepts of the invisible within the, in the invisible in my book from like layers of disability, layers of gender and sexual orientation. Once we layer the different identity markers, that's when the layers of invisibility start to manifest. Do you worry at all about just the paradox of kind of what we see happening in some parts of the country where there is sort of a push against efforts to incorporate learning about other races and other people's identity? Our public leaders want to do things for show sometimes. Sometimes they want to do things performatively, and it's both explicit It's both intentional and sometimes they just don't know what they're doing. They're just doing it haphazardly. And I'm noticing both things are true. Like to me, with the case of Florida, for example, Asian American education gets passed. Rah, rah, awesome. Yeah. You know, like we got a coalitions around fighting for it. I know them because I was a coach in Miami fighting for those same things. Yeah. And then AP African American history gets denied. Right. Right. Whoa. Right. And then DEI, there's anti-woke laws. Right. So there's that tension right there. So to me, I call performativity on that. All right. It begs the question around why Asian Americans right out of this whole thing. And it makes me question, like, what are my Asian American folks who fought for that bill going to do when they knew that AP African-American history got denied? Are they going to be in coalition and fight and say, hey, we got ours. Let's help you get yours. That's collective liberation. And that's cross-coalition building, right? Or are they going to say, no, we got ours. Thank you. We're going to just stick in our lane. And that's how we do it. 
that's my big question right now. That's my paradox that I want to deal with as a case study because um, there's only so much I can do with those leaders who made those sharp decisions, right? But I know for my Asian American communities who I was in community with, my locus of control is actually there and I can actually challenge them to say, hey, go on and talk with them the NAACP and do something about this so you can still fight and advocate for African-American AP history or African-American studies in K-12. And this is how you do it, right? You share resources. Right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Tons of great stuff to share and talk about today. Yes. It was such a wonderful time to be able to speak at Harvard EdCast, to be a part of this legacy and part of a great people who are bringing one racial literacy to the forefront. Tony De La Rosa is an anti-bias and anti-racist educator and researcher. He is the author of Teaching the Invisible Race, Embodying a Pro-Asian American Lens in School. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.